0: Good morning, everyone. (laughs) Um, The passage that we're going to study this morning is a passage where a father loses his sons, where he ultimately loses his life, and it is a national tragedy. And as I was thinking about this, uh, the events that happened last Sunday and this week, uh, we also are in a national tragedy and I think that maybe it would be appropriate to also just take a few seconds of our time this morning and just remember, uh, the selfish side of me wants to run away from the feelings that happen when um, tragedies happen in in our world, when massacres happen, and when all kinds of uh, events that just I can't explain or understand happen. But... The Christ in me says instead of running the other way, that we should run towards it. And so I just want to invite you into a moment of silence where we can silently pray for the families and for the fathers who lost their sons uh, last week. Father, we lift up the families in Orlando and families all over the world who are experiencing pain and trauma today, even in this room. We believe that you hold us in your hand. Your strong hand. We thank you for being the Father, that, that knows what's going on, even if the family and the children don't understand what's going on, and we just trust you with this world. Amen. I'd like to invite you to uh, co- uh, contemplate with me the gospel this morning, and also to explore the character of God as it is revealed in the story uh, in, in 1 Samuel. So please turn to 1 Samuel chapter 31. We've been studying first uh, and Second Samuel now, and will continue for the rest of the summer. And last week, Rod led us uh, through a very convicting challenge from First Samuel chapter 28, uh, and asked us to really consider, with what spirit do we practice our spirituality? That there are ways that we can be spiritual and actually avoid a, a relationship with God. And, and be spiritual in order to get what we want and manipulate our lives and in situ- in the situation that we're in. His reflections were on Saul's visit to a town called Endor where he sees a soothsayer, a witch, who conjures up this spirit of what appeared to be the late prophet Samuel. My only problem with what happened with Samuel and Saul there is is that Samuel didn't say goodbye. I don't know if you guys noticed that. just sort of disappeared. It's like a pet peeve of mine if I'm on the phone with somebody and they just hang up. I mean, it's like the, the conversation's over. I guess I'm just more classic in how I end my discussions. I need closure. I want someone to land the plane and not just say, all right, and then hang up. But maybe that's just me. Samuel didn't say goodbye. Well, enough about what Samuel didn't say. What did he he say? Samuel didn't say goodbye. He actually said, I'll see you tomorrow. Which could be a bad thing. Well, it's a bad thing for one of two reasons. Either this is going to be an Ebenezer, Scrooge, Jacob, Marley uh, situation. Where Samuel haunts Saul until he learns a lesson or Saul is going to go and live where Samuel lives tomorrow, and he's going to die. This is where the story picks up in chapter 31. If you are able and willing uh, to stand for the reading of God's word, then please stand with me. 1 Samuel 31 and verse 1. Now the Philistines fought against Israel. The Israelites fled before them, and many fell slain on Mount Gilboa. The Philistines pressed hard after Saul and his sons. They killed his sons, Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malkishua. The fighting grew fierce around Saul, and when the archers overtook him, they wounded him critically. Saul then said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and run me through, or these uncircumcised men will come and run me through and make a sport out of it. But his armor-bearer was terrified and wouldn't do it. So Saul took his own sword and fell on it. When the armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he too fell on his sword and died with him. So Saul and his three sons and his armor-bearer and all his men died together that same day. When the Israelites along the valley... And those across the Jordan saw that the Israelite army had fled and and that Saul and his sons had died. They abandoned their towns and fled. And the Philistines came and occupied them. The next day, when the Philistine came to strip the dead, they found Saul and his three fallen sons at Mount Gaba. They cut off his head, stripped his armor, and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim the news in the temple of their idols and among their people. They put his armor in the temple of their Ashtoreth, and fastened his body to the wall at Baitshan. These are the very words of God. You may have a seat. The story of 1 Samuel is the tale of two kings. One king, his name is David, and he is the king that God desires. The king after God's heart. He shows us a life that is flawed, yet pure. Flawed, yet is uh, imperfect, yet seeking righteousness. This is uh, a good example of a relationship with God. And David also shows us, a, uh, if through his victories, some very clear pictures of who the Messiah is for us. The other king in 1 Samuel is the king that is uh, after the heart of man. His name is Saul, and he's a mirror held up before us all that says, this is what can lie in the heart of man. Saul's name in Hebrew is pronounced Shaul. Shaul comes from the Hebrew word sha'al, which means to ask. This is all over uh, First Samuel. You've probably read uh, the word inquire when David would inquire of the Lord. sha'al. okay. And so when you see Samuel, there's a little word play here. Uh, he he takes Saul and says, "Here is Shaul, the king that you have Shaal. Shaul it develops from this to ask into what you did the desired, okay, what you desire. And the, the, the picture that we get in Saul is, is what happens in life when you let your desire become king. He is the story of when desire becomes king in life. This is what ends up happening. Now the Jewish sages of old used to study the Bible in very specific ways that they call Midrash. Midrash is the Hebrew word for Searching. They're always searching the depth of meaning and believing that in each word in the Bible is just great depth and uh, treasure to be found. One of the ways that they would uh, study, uh, one of the, the types of Midrash is revocalization. In Hebrew, you just have consonants. And then eventually, uh, they, did, they were mispronouncing words. And so they decided to put vowels underneath the word to help the vocalization. So what the sages would do is they'll take the vowels out and look at those consonants, place new vowels on there, and see what happens. Sometimes there's a word that uh, that can make another word that could bring some profound meaning to the situation. Well, I have a midrash of my own. I took the vowels off of the word Saul in Hebrew, Shaul, and placed different vowels on it. Okay, so this is just a gift. I can't, I can't find anyone else that actually that's talking about this. So um, take it or leave it. New vowels on Sheen Aleph uh, Vav Lamed spells Sheol. A very popular uh, Hebrew noun for a place that dead people go to live. And my lesson there would be, If Shaul becomes the king in your life, it will lead to Sheol. A little story that comes to mind uh, to illustrate why this is in the Bible and why we would spend time on Sunday mornings gathering around this. Um, I get confused oftentimes for a guy named Will Weatherhead. I don't know if you guys know him. He played the acoustic guitar this morning. and I'm not sure why this happens, but very often... Someone will come up to me and be like, hey, Will, how's it going? And have long conversations with me about my family and my kids and all this that I don't have. And I'll let it go because I don't want anybody to be embarrassed. I don't even think we look that much alike, but it's not like dishonor to me. I really like him. He's a good friend of mine. He's been a companion for a long time. And one time, Will and I were traveling in the Middle East. And we were, we were staying on the sea of the, the Mediterranean Sea on the coast. And we decided uh, we're going swimming tonight. It's a beautiful day out. It's after dinner, it's really warm. We go down to the beach, and the waves are just enormous. And the breeze is coming in, and it's just perfect. We're swimming, we're splashing, we're having fun. And the sun goes down on the horizon, and it's too dark to swim. And we're like, man, I got a lot of energy. I could swim for at least another hour. And so then I look down the beach, and there, about a hundred yards down, is are these two large pillars with like football field stadium lights on them, shining towards the water. And I'm like, "Let's go check it out." I go and I think the only reason why these lights are here is probably so that people can swim at night when they want to do what we're doing. And and the, and the waves are getting bigger. So we go in and we continue to swim for at least another half hour, 45 minutes. And as we're just body surfing, having a good time, there's this Jewish woman on the shore shouting towards us, waving and making gestures. And I'm like, well, go see what she wants. And he's like, why don't you go see what she wants? <laughs> so I go up to the lady and I'm like, do you speak English? No? Okay. How do, what, what is going on here? And this guy's walking by, and I'm like, hey, could you help me out, please? And he's like, okay, I'll listen. He listens, and he comes to me, and he says, what she is saying is this. You idiots. These lights are here to show that this is the most dangerous place to swim, for the riptide here is the strongest in the whole beach. And so they go back into the water and say, Will, how many people do we have with us out here? You know, four or five. Is it four or is it five? This is very important right now. (laughs) Nobody was lost at sea that night. And it is a story of what we call learning the easy way in comparison to learning the hard way. I don't know how this lady came to know of that riptide uh, being strong right there, if she had personal experience in that or not. But I do know is that Saul is like that Jewish mother, that woman standing on the shore shouting out, saying, guys, this is a dangerous place to play. Standing on the shores of our lives saying, the riptide's here. The tide's coming in, and if you stay in there, you will get swept away. Saul didn't ask to be king. Saul was kind of thrown into this situation, and he was swept away by the pride of life, by the abuse of authority, and by his need for power. He was swept out to sea. Let him speak to you this morning and say, don't go there. This is dangerous. So consider your life. When you're overwhelmed and in over your head and... When you're in a situation that, that you just feel like you can't escape from, will you be like Saul, or, or what, who will you turn to? What will you do? We're going to ask him through his life what he would have done or advise us to do. Verse 1. The Philistines fought against Israel. The Israelites fled before them, and many fell slain at Mount Gilboa. Is it just me, or do I uh, do, Does anyone else think that every single time we turn the page in First Samuel, Israel is fighting the Philistines? What is up with that? This is—I mean—how many times can they go to battle with the same people? They—they got to be running out of people at some point. It's not a surprise that the Philistines are in Israel. In Exodus 23, God tells Moses, I'm sending you to a land that has Philistines in it. But he specifically says, I do not want you to cohabitate with them. I do not want them to be there. So you are to drive the Philistine out. Why? Because their way of life, their worldview, and what they believe in is poisonous to the way of life for the children of God. It's poison. They worship man-made idols. They're obsessed with comfort and technology. And they love violence. So Joshua tries to run the Philistines out of town. And he does a pretty good job. But he doesn't finish finish it. The judges have many run-ins with the Philistines. And they're trying to get them out of this country. But yet... You have situations like Samson, who's he's marrying the Philistines, and uh, you know, and, and he does some things there, but doesn't completely. The judges don't completely rid the Philist, uh, the land of the Philistines. Well, okay, Joshua judges. Maybe the priest will the priest, uh, you know, get the Philistines out of here. Okay, well, Eli comes into contact with the Philistines, ends up losing the Ark of the Covenant, ruining the whole tabernacle, falls over backwards in his chair and breaks his neck. A lot of good that did. Now what's left? What about a king? Only, if only we had a king to fight for us, he would do what God wants us to do and rid the land of these people, of this poison. So we get a king. His name is Saul. And does he rid the land of the Philistines? Well, he tries sometimes Sometimes he just sort of has an unspoken agreement with them. When David goes and talks to the king of Gath, uh, the king of Gath says, you know, I know that Saul won't come here. And this is a life lesson. There are things in our lives that we know God does not want us to have living there. If we allow these Philistines to dwell just even on the fringes of our life, we will come to Mount Gilboa. They will keep creeping in and eventually surround us. And their archers are aiming for you, not to wound, but to kill. My question isn't, are there Philistines in our lives? I know that there are. My question is, why do you do when you're surrounded by them? Well, the first thing that Saul does is, uh, you can see in verse 4, Saul said to his armor bearer, Draw your sword and run me through, or else these uncircumcised men will come and run me through and abuse me. Okay, so imagine if you're the armor bearer, this is kind of an unlikely situation. I mean, I'm sure he's been waiting all of his life to finally help the king in battle. And he knows about Moses and Joshua and their military campaigns. The sun standing still or Moses' arms being lifted up and victory coming. He knows about the judges. Surely this is going to be a time where the king trusts in the Lord and has this moment of heroism uh, that God rescues them. And they are going to be the, uh, the victors in this story. And so he looks to Saul and he's like, Saul, what's the plan? Well, my plan is this it's very simple. Take your sword and stab me. After that, you could do whatever you want. Okay? Uh, I was looking for something a little bit more like Russell Crowe at the end of Gladiator, you know, with, uh, with the, the arrowhead in his hand. Uh, I'll even take Bruce Willis at the end of Armageddon, self-detonating the bomb uh, to save everybody. But seriously, Saul, <laughs> just, you know, stab me and then maybe, you know, stab yourself or figure, I mean, what kind of plan is this? ironic that he would ask the armor bearer to stab him, given that the armor bearer has one job to do, and it is to keep him safe. (laughs) Imagine if he had lived, and then uh, would go on and and ask for other jobs in life, and and it's like, well, before I was the king's armor bearer, and I survived, but it just doesn't make any sense, but oftentimes in life, we do the same thing when we're overwhelmed, And we're in a situation where we feel like uh, we can't do anything. We'll look to somebody nearby us and place on them uh, responsibility that often is the opposite of what they're in our lives to even do. The armor bearer is there to protect him, not to kill him. But oftentimes we'll look to the wife and say, you need to be the husband. Or look to the husband and say, I need you to be the wife. Or look to the grandparents and say, I need you to be the parents. Or look to the kids and say, I need you to be the parents. Never meant to have that expectation placed on them. I'd like to say that I'm uh, immune to this same uh, situation or this same uh, actions. You know, Saul goes and he asks the armor bearer, bail me out, you help me, you fix this. Saul ends up taking matter into his own hands. And in 2 Samuel chapter 1, we read that an Amalekite claims to be there as well, and that Saul didn't do, the, do a good job, and uh, that he asked the Amalekite to actually uh, finish the job as well. It's like Saul will ask anyone to help, except for the one person that actually can help God. I do the same thing. If I'm depressed or if I've got an issue or something perplexing me and I can't figure it out, I'll go to Charles and talk. I'll go to Will and talk. I'll go to Brad and talk. Call my parents. Ask the internet to give me answers for something. But I will not ask God for help. And so this ends Saul's life. Imagine what would have happened if Saul would have cried out to God for help. It's hard because It it didn't happen, but we kind of know what might have happened. I mean, Samuel was in the exact same situation in chapter 7. They're surrounded by the Philistines. And then Samuel said to all of the Israelites, continue to cry out to the Lord to help us. Do not stop crying out for Him." To rescue us from the hand of the Philistines. Then Samuel makes an offering and a sacrifice. And the Lord thunders through the sky. And scares the sandals off of the Philistines. And they run crazy. And the the Israelites uh, win the battle. And then it says in in verse uh, uh, 12. Samuel took a stone and set it up. And called it Ebenezer. Meaning uh, stone of help in Hebrew. So the Philistines, in verse 13, were subdued and did not invade Israel, uh, Israel's territory again throughout the lifetime of Samuel. The hand of the Lord was against the Philistine and the towns of Ekron and Gath that the Philistines had captured from Israel were restored to Israel. Israel was delivered from neighboring uh, territories and from the power of the Philistines and there was peace in Israel, between Israel and the Amorites. <laughs> imagine if Saul would have cried out to God, maybe the same thing would have happened. Or imagine if in our lives as well, instead of going to the Philistine and to the Amalekite and taking matters into our own hands and trying to find the answers everywhere else, if we would ask God for help if your life right now is just this big cycle of asking other people to fix you, I got uh, advice, Is a one word prayer, help. When is the last time that you just, instead of talking to somebody else, you just got on your knees and said, help? For the sake of your marriages and for the sake of your families and, and for your workplace and your city, I beg you to just ask God for help. Go to the stone of help, Ebenezer. Go to uh, Jesus, our cornerstone, who was wounded like Saul, who was abused by foreign people, and he still said, I will do this, not because uh, I let Philistines into my heart, but because you let Philistines into your heart, and I will do anything to set you free and rescue you. Help. Selah. Verse 8 says, The next day the Philistines came to strip the dead. They found Saul and his sons, cut off his head, stripped him of his armor, sent messengers throughout the land to proclaim the good news in their temple and their, uh, of their idols. And they took his armor and they put it in their temple and fastened his body to the wall of Bichon. I'm not 100% sure what's going on here. But it's, it seems like a bad thing when somebody, right after you die, takes... Your, like, legacy takes what? Your things and puts it up as an idol in their temple. What's that say about how people view you and what, and what you stand for? Now, it's not like this is the only time that this happens. I mean, you sh- I'm sure you remember Gideon. After his battle, they take his clothes and worship his clothes. Or the, ser- the bronze serpent from the wilderness becomes an idol as well. I'm starting to get a little suspicious as to why the sword of Goliath was in the tabernacle under the showbread table. Remember back in 21 uh, when David was talking to Ahimelech? Um, and I'm wondering if maybe what's happening is, is people are falling to this temptation that when we have victory in life, it's to do more with the actual uh, things that are used for victory rather than it's to do with God himself. If you were to ask me, when does armor, that is just armor, it's not bad in, in and of itself, when does armor turn into an idol? It's not just when the Philistines bring it into their temple. Armor turns into idol when we trade faith in God for the armor. And the reason why we don't talk about this very much in a corporate environment, because it's almost impossible to make any general statements about this. Um, For example, armor might look to some like a big bank account. But a big bank account also can be an act of faith and obedience in God. And so you can't say one way or the other just corporately. You know, uh, going on a missions trip for years might be an act of obedience and faithfulness. But it also might be an act of self-righteousness and an act uh, to to justify yourself before the Lord. Uh, You know what I mean? And so it's kind of hard to say... Everybody in this camp is trading faith for armor. And everybody in this camp is good to go. It's just, it's hard to do. And you have to evaluate yourself and ask yourself the question. Am I trading faith in God for this protection and this security and for this promise uh, here and there? Because those things might uh, uh, be used for victory in our lives. But they're never the thing that is the sole purpose of victory in our life. So to make it even more complicated, as I'm reading the room, it seems like everyone's totally understanding what I'm saying. Uh, <laughs> here's the trickier part inside of this whole thing. That when you do this, when we do this in the Christian faith, it feels like we're in a relationship with God still. And the reason for that is, is you are in a relationship with God. It's just a transactional relationship. Not the relationship that God wants to have with you. When Jesus says, there will be many in the end that says, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these things in your name? And he says, yeah, but I never knew you. And that means there was some relationship that they felt there, but it wasn't the right relationship. Okay, so we can't act like we have a relationship with God and believe that we have a good relationship when it's just making a bunch of transactions with him. The way that I um, simplify this in my own heart is this. Ask yourself a question. What does God have to do for you? That question will start to show if you have some subconscious uh, transaction that you're making with God. What does he have to do for you? Okay, I mean, isn't that how God works? You know, God, I have been very generous in my gifts lately, and so I expect that you bless me with abundance. You have to. I mean, you got to do that. Okay, God, isn't there some proverb somewhere that says, if you love someone, let them go, and if they come back, it's meant to be? Okay, I've surrendered the idea of getting married uh, to my dream husband or wife, and in, in, in surrendering then, I also expect that you have to bring that to me. It's how it works. You have to do that. Okay, I've prayed for my family every day, I, I've raised them and trained them up in the right ways, so of course they have to uh, follow you the rest of their life, because that's, that's, that's your job. I've fasted now for seven days to get the answer of what I should do next in life, and you have to respond because of my effort. These are the transactions that we easily make with God. And when we start trusting in those things, instead of having faith in God, they become idols. God doesn't have to do anything. He'll allow us to try and bend his arm. He'll allow us to hold our breath until we turn blue. Or he'll allow us to keep tugging on him and trying to intimidate him. But he doesn't have to respond. Is he still worth it? God doesn't have to do anything. Jesus even says to people who, who want to try, go ahead and try. Because the only thing worse than not having what you want is actually having what you want, right? And so he, he to the rich young ruler, right, says, he says to Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What transaction must I make in order to be good to go? And Jesus says, well, you could, do, you could try the two commandments. You can do, uh, you know, give your stuff away. You could try all of these things. Why don't you go and do that? Well, why didn't Jesus say uh, you need to have faith, you need to just um, not try and make a, some sort of formula out of this? Because sometimes God will allow us to do these transactions with him. But the sooner that we realize that that is not the way uh, into relationship with God, the better. Jesus says to his disciples in John chapter 14, Don't be afraid. Believe in me. Believe also in my Father. I'm going to prepare a place for you. uh, And you know where I'm going. And what does St. Thomas say? I don't know where you're going. How can I know? I don't know the way. How can I go and be with you where you are, Jesus? And he's like, Jesus is like, you know the way, Thomas. I am the way. There's no Secret. There's no map. There's no, you know, knowledge that you need to get in order to get there and, and be sure that you're there. He says, it's just me. You just need me in order to, uh, to be there. You just need to believe in me, not believe in your system and your armor and not believe in these other things that promise you security. Have faith. So, if anybody this morning is trusting in things ra- uh, rather than trusting in God, want to encourage you to acknowledge the fear that you have, because it's going to be, this is very scary. Okay, it's very scary to say, um, I surrender these things (laughs) that promise me security. And, you know, uh, but pray Psalm 3, maybe. I, I don't know if you're familiar with it. It's, oh Lord, how many are my enemies? How many of my enemies have surrounded me? And they say, there is no salvation for him. God's not going to save him. But you, O oh Lord, are a shield around me. You are my glory and the lifter of my head. You are my shield. You are my armor. All these uh, lies that are coming around me telling me that I need to have this armor. I need to have this protection. There's no salvation for that person. I need to just... First and foremost, say, Lord, you are my shield. Not really sure what to do with the whole uh, part that I didn't read at the end there. Jabesh Gilead comes and takes Saul's body off of the wall. I wasn't planning on saying anything about that, because it didn't really fit in perfectly with what I was thinking. But... I mean that's part of it, but um, you think about it though. At Father's Day, maybe this is a tangent for fathers. These men go in the middle of the night and take Saul's body off of the wall and give him a proper burial. There's a time in life to say no. I would love for the fathers to think of the times in, their cult, in, their, in your world where there's injustice happening. And, and you may not agree with Saul. You may not want to be associated with Saul. But you still see what's happening to this person and you say, no. That's enough. And you step up and you do the right thing rather than doing things right. Kind of encouraged by Jabesh Gilead there. Anyways. That was tangential. Um, to end our, our thoughts this morning, I just there's, uh, there's something that's indicative of the life of Saul that I want to put before you. It's not necessarily in one specific story. The main thing that Saul tells us with his life is that he has a big problem admitting wrong. Never once... Does Saul admit defeat? He'd rather die than admit defeat. God always responds to people who repent. He always responds to people who say, I was wrong. One of Jesus' disciples wrote this verse of 1 John chapter 1 that says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. If you this morning are, are saying, yes, I do, have these, uh, I do have these character traits of Saul where I am uh, unable to ask for help, and I'm putting other people in positions uh, to fail around me and shirking my responsibilities. Acknowledge that before the Lord. He promises to forgive you. Why wouldn't you? Why, why wouldn't you? In, in, in acknowledging this implicit uh, implicit apology there, saying, I, I've done this. I've come before you, and I'm guilty. He promises to forgive you. If there's any of you this morning who are here, and you're saying, you know what? I have way too much armor on, and I've been, been putting all these pillows all around me, trying to be as comfortable as possible, and I'm, and I'm learning that this armor isn't perfect. And I've been trading faith in God for the comfort of this world. Confess that before the Lord. And he promises to forgive you. And he promises to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. He will wash you. 100%. Not only partially. Not not 50%. And we'll see what happens. You know, if you act right later on. Not 99% and you have to, you know, muster up enough to wash yourself 1%. He is... He is faithful to cleanse us from all unrighteousness if you lay it before Him. Jesus, like Saul, was also nailed up to a piece of wood. And He is there to say, There's nothing that I wouldn't do for you to be free. I would, I would, greater love, does, the, what does Jesus say? Greater love, I can never say this right, it's a tongue twister. Say it, one, one person at a time. <laughs> Greater... They got tons of two. It's not just me. <laughs> Anyways, uh, it's something to do with laying your life down for your brother. And that, that uh, it's, it's a big portion of love, you know, uh, It's not a joke. Okay, it's it's funny because I'm making mistakes, but it's it's true. Saul didn't die for our sin. He died in his sin. But Jesus didn't die in his sin. He died for our sin. He communicates so much value to us to say, I will do anything for you. Just come to me. This is the gospel. Pray with me. There are those of us who just need to acknowledge and confess uh, where we are if, if we've been trusting in God uh, or trusting in armor. And there are those of us who need to acknowledge um, and that we're in over our heads and need to ask for help. If you do that, he will help you. He will protect you. Jesus, we hear the voice of Saul shouting to us out in the riptide saying, come in, turn around, come back, it's dangerous. We thank you for being the rock out there in the water that we can cling to that's not going to go anywhere. May we be fathers who ask for help and cry out on behalf of our family and our cities and nation and ask you to come and rescue us. And may we be warriors that ward off the Philistines and not allow them to live in our hearts and lives. May we be mothers who are able to trust in God rather than trust in other uh, forms of protection over God. May we be a family that's willing to confess our sins and repent and and receive the full washing that the Lord provides for us.